0: Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is David Goldman. He's an American economic strategist and author, best known for his series of online essays in the Asia Times under the pseudonym Spengler. The first column of Spengler, at least as reported in Wikipedia, was published January 1, 2000. The pseudonym is, of course, an allusion to German historian Oswald Spengler, whose most famous work, Decline of the West, asserted that Western civilization was already dying. Goldman held senior positions in banking. He was head of credit strategy at Credit Suisse, global head of fixed income research for Bank of America, and global head of fixed income research at Cantor Fitzgerald. His most recent book is You Will Be Assimilated. China's Plan to Sinoform the World, which was published in 2020 and which I hope to discuss in some detail with David.
1: David, welcome to the podcast. Stephen, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: The pleasure is all mine. As I was telling you before we started recording, I've been reading your column since I think the early 2000s, and I was always incredibly impressed with your both historical insights, but also insights into what was happening, for example, in the Asia Pacific region, which I I think you were based there for some length of time. Is that right?
1: Yes, I was a partner at a little Hong Kong investment banking boutique, then called Reorient Group. It was ultimately acquired by Jack Ma, and I spent most of my time uh, in Asia. Uh, And I also served on the board of an Israeli foundation dedicated to israeli chinese relations and in that capacity i got to go to beijing and talk to people with the israelis which gives you a very different perspective than when you speak to them as an american although i am an american i I don't hold an israeli passport
0: yeah i so i've i've always valued your insights over over these decades as i again as i was mentioning to you before we started recording when, there's some, when I get a chance to have a conversation with someone whose work I've been reading for 10 or 20 years, I'm always fascinated to find out about their early life and formative years because it often gives me some insight as to, as, as to how they acquired their insights. So if you don't mind, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about where you grew up, your education, how you find yourself in banking, how you find yourself in Asia.
1: Well, the, the short answer is uh, uh, by lucky or unlucky accident. Actually, all I ever wanted to do was classical music. Uh, my constraint on classical music, is I had no real talent for it, just a great love for it. I ultimately did everything but the dissertation in a doctorate in music theory at City University of New York with uh, Carl Schachter, who uh, was the dean of the music theory profession in the United States. Great privilege to study with them. I was something of an outlier as a boy. Classical music to me was like a, a religious experience. And that was, well, it it, it it meant for some lonely times in the world of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And through classical music, I became interested in broader cultural issues associated with it. For example, I fell in love with the art songs that uh, Robert Schumann wrote to the poetry of Heinrich Heine, which motivated me eventually to learn German and things like that. And the question which has obsessed me for many years is why the West would develop the most inspiring and elevating high culture in the history of the human race and then effectively abandoned. It's, it's like being an archaeologist looking at mayan cities why would you have these spectacular works now consumed by the jungle uh and by the same token why would bach mozart and beethoven be so neglected as a matter of popular taste so i became very interested in the cultural background to the decline of western high culture and as i said i i I did most of a doctorate in music theory i really by the time i went into wall street i had actually decided to get whatever job i could you know uh, teaching music theory at the east oklahoma state teachers college for the for the deaf or you know or whoever would have me and living a very quiet life then my first child was born and i noticed immediately that she wanted to eat almost every day and i I, i'd done some economics and actually the the connection to wall street came largely as a result of my political association with the so-called supply side wing of the republican party larry kudlow who of course was President Trump's principal economic advisor was then the chief economist at Bear Stearns. I had been working for a supply side consulting firm in the 1980s. Larry took their product. At some point, I fell out with the colorful and somewhat uh, obstreperous founder of the consulting firm, needed a job. And Larry suggested that I apply for a job opening at Bear Stearns for a fixed income strategist. I didn't know anything about fixed income, so I went to Barnes Noble and bought a shelf of books on fixed income mathematics. It's trivial arithmetic, so I learned it in a month, and I walked in and said, of course I know fixed income. And I think largely because I talk fast and write well. I ascended through the ranks and eventually became the head of fixed income research at Bank of America, had a rather prominent job. I quit that in 2005 because the people I worked for were asking me to do things which could charitably be construed as felonies. Uh, Actually, compared to most of the things people were doing before the 2008 crash, this was fairly mild stuff, but I didn't like it, so I quit. And... Did a number of different things, I worked for hedge funds. I spent a couple of years as an editor at first things magazine. And then, you know, some people who were friends of mine, they used to work for me, set up this boutique in Hong Kong. And I thought, gee, that's fun. China is the most interesting new thing happening in the world. This chance to learn about it. So really by pure accident, I got into fixed income in the first place. And by another accident. I got deeply involved in the Chinese economy, the great thing about working for the Hong Kong boutique is that it was Chinese owned. It was founded by uh, a Hong Kong tycoon named Johnson Ko, who had very good contacts in the mainland, I did some IPOs with Chinese tech companies. And as a result of that, I got to see a side of China, which many Westerners do not see, so I had a privileged view. Uh, my knowledge of China is not that of a scholar. It's more forest gump. I happen to turn up in the right place at the right time and meet the right people.
0: You know, David, because you're so insightful writing about culture and, and broad themes, before I opened up your bio, I had assumed that your banking positions were on the equity side. I had assumed you were kind of a global macro strategists and fixed income guys, at least uh, the ones I know, are are pretty mathematical and and quite a bit more boring usually than the guys who deal in equities. Uh,
1: We are are intentionally boring. Fixed income is inherently boring. It's supposed to be. When it gets exciting, it means something has gone terribly wrong. Actually, the uh, contribution I made to fixed income research, which was most successful, was in quantitative modeling. Of corporate bonds uh, using the option-based approach that Robert Merton had pioneered in the 1970s at Credit Suisse and Bank of America, we produced the first models of corporate default risk based on equity option pricing following the Merton approach. I'm not much of a quant, but I know enough. I know enough math to supervise quants. So. What I did was actually extremely boring and extremely quantitative, and I'm glad not to be doing it uh, anymore, though, you know, it's, it has its uses. It, was not, it worked reasonably well and I think added some value, and I don't apologize for it.
0: When you, look at, when you look back at that era in finance, does it seem like a lost era that things are totally different today than then, or, or do you feel that there's a strong sense of continuity between what you're doing then and what people do today?
1: yeah the um there are enormous differences for one thing the degree of controls on leverage in the banking system prior to 2008 was effectively zero federal reserve ben bernanke who i think is highly overrated basically let the lunatics take over the asylum and allowed the the Wall Street to create structured product, which was essentially a phony AAA and then apply incredible amounts of leverage to these phony AAAs, which is what got the banking system into near insolvency when that market came undone in 2008, particularly with uh, home equity loans. That's all been shut down. Another very basic change is that corporate bonds were a wild west market. Nobody knew what prices really were, because you didn't have to report the prices at which they traded. Now, old corporate bond transactions have to be reported to NASDAQ, to the trace system, within 15 minutes, which means it's much more liquid. So a great deal of activity is being taken over by electronic trading platforms. The old trading and sales combination that made so much money for us in the 2000s has been probably appropriately laid to rest forever. But this, the same kind of problems apply. Actually, the, the one area where this this kind of approach may have purchase would be in emerging market uh, debt. Uh, emerging market corporate bond markets are still pretty wild west, opaque, badly regulated, illiquid. So I've been involved in some attempts to revive this approach for emerging market corporate bonds. But well, yes, Wall Street is certainly a very different place.
0: I get the sense that you were kind of an intellectual among financiers. Did did you think of yourself that way?
1: I was doing a job. You know, I didn't. Disc- I, I I didn't talk to them about sh- the, the relative merits of Schumann's and Schubert's settings of Heinrich Ida poetry, if that's what you mean. But we talked about how to make money and how to outperform benchmarks. That is a that's not a particularly challenging or interesting exercise, and I was glad to be done with it. But I did that for a living; I didn't see it as a vocation.
0: Now, you, you started writing the Spengler column. Is it is that correct in Wikipedia that it was January one
1: two thousand when you started writing the column? That's correct. My my first column asked the question: Are internet stocks really a bubble? And I argued, I shouldn't have taken my own advice on this, I argued that they were in a bubble, that they portended a cultural change so profound that vast cash flows would be directed towards companies that could provide electronic entertainment online, in effect. I didn't envision social media and so forth in those days. Back then it was downloading music and pornography and a few other things like that. But if you look at how... Uh, the internet and handheld devices and continuous online presence has transformed the culture, transformed really personalities of a generation. It does in fact explain why the large internet monopolies are producing, you know, spectacular and regular returns. So, i argued that you have to look at the changes in valuation of these companies as a cultural phenomenon that the fact that they're there transforms the culture makes people behave differently and that behavior was going to produce consistently high valuations over the long term
0: yeah i think the prediction that there would be some winner-take-all quasi-monopolies created i think turned out to be completely correct and i guess the In 2000, we didn't really anticipate smartphones, but obviously that was the other thing that changed people's daily lives. Sure. I
1: mean, the the remarkable thing about the smartphone, the genius of Apple, I still like the old Blackberries better than Apple. I won't own an Apple. I can't stand them because Apple modifies your behavior. The whole point of an Apple is that once you get into the habit of using Apple products, it's very difficult to break it. And they try to lock you into their ecosystem of entertainment, including music, movies, news, and everything else. Uh, They've been extremely successful, brilliant at doing that, given the kind of rebel and misfit that I've always been. I I, I hate being shepherded that way. So I've always had an animus towards Apple, uh, but an absolutely brilliant company. The BlackBerry was a much better piece of technology. It made better phone calls, more robust, didn't break when you drop it. But Apple found a way of integrating computation and entertainment in a comprehensive way that basically addicted people. They are the crack pushers of the electronic age and brilliant at it.
0: I actually was an iPhone user for a long time and actually switched to Android at some point. So I think I, I, I went against the conditioning.
1: You're one of the few who escaped. You're a lucky man.
0: Yeah, I'm actually fairly happy in the Android ecosystem. But anyway, we shouldn't digress into that. But I wanted to ask you, when did you move to Asia? That was 2013.
1: I see. So it was post-financial crisis. Well, I, I did a lot of traveling in Asia before that because I had teams in my research groups that worked for me in Asia. And of course, we called regularly on Asian customers. During the 2000s, Bank of America's biggest fixed income business was using its branch network to issue uh, non-conforming mortgages, that is, mortgages that were not guaranteed by federal agencies, packaging them into securities and selling those securities to uh, the rest of the world who wanted a place to park their savings. And uh, Asians, of course, think that things like houses, are extremely safe. And we did our best to perpetuate that delusion and sell them all of the fixed income product we could. So I spent a lot of time trips around Asia peddling this uh, toxic waste to uh, Asian clients until I got disgusted and quit.
0: And how did did those products do in the the crisis? Uh, Better or worse than the, the AAA conforming mortgage? Uh, back security. Well, they did much worse.
1: The private label stuff did much worse. The the best thing you can say about uh, the banks is that the triple A portions of most of the product ultimately did pay off. There were very few actual defaults. That's why the banking system didn't come down in 2008. Uh, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC exercised regulatory forbearance. On paper, the banks were bankrupt because they'd levered up massive amounts of these phony AAAs backed by home equity mortgages, home equity loans, and various other things. And the value of this stuff went from 100 cents on the dollar to sometimes 30 cents on the dollar. So you lever that up a zillion times, You know, that wipes out your capital if you market to market. However, because there was enough credit protection built into those structures, the defaults were absorbed by lower parts of the capital structure, there were very few real interruptions of payment to the AAA. So the banks were earning enough on a current basis from the portfolios of this toxic waste to pay their depositors, which meant they were solvent on a cash basis, although on a mark-to-market basis, They were bankrupt. So all you had to do was say, well, you know, who gives you some extra capital? We'll give you time to work it out. Uh, And the banks eventually clawed themselves back from that. So it was never quite as bad as it might have looked. Did you ever try to
0: track how the Treasury and the Fed did on uh, all the distressed
1: mortgage-backed debt that they bought up during the crisis? They made money. but they didn't buy a lot of the distressed mortgage-backed debt. They, weren't buy, they were buying mortgages, but they they weren't buying the toxic waste trenches. In other words, what what Bank of America was doing at the time? So they'd have a, a bunch of mortgages, and at that point, remember 2008, came after a decade in which housing prices, well, up to 2007, were rising at 10% a year. So if... if you can get a 5% down mortgage. Let's say you buy a house worth $100,000 and you put down 5000 And the next year, the price is $110,000. Well, your investment, your cash investment is only $5,000. Your profit is 10000 That means you doubled your money in a year. So all of America who could became house flippers, speculators, liars and felons because if you fill out a mortgage application and lie about your income which vast numbers of people did you're committing a felony so we criminalized the american homeowner and then the banks would take these loans and repackage them and sell them to unsuspecting buyers and s p and moody's would obligingly say well the top tranche is worth is is a triple A rating. In other words, it'll never possibly default. The idea being that the top tranche had 60% of the principal and the first 40% of defaults would be absorbed by people who bought lower rated bonds. There were cases where Bank of America took portfolios of loans and issued them saying that they were prime loan, took them into securities. And the internal risk managers of Bank of America Said, wait a minute, not only is this portfolio out a prime portfolio, there's not a single mortgage in the portfolio that be, would be considered prime. And the banker said, Oh no, it's prime, and they sold this stuff. Bank of America was fined billions of dollars uh, for that kind of fraud. I find it astonishing and distressing that nobody, not one person, went to jail or got convicted of a felony for fraudulent representation of uh, collateral insecurities. And there were thousands of people who were implicated in this. I guess the reason is, you'd put one person in jail, the jails would be full of bankers, so they decided not to do it. Instead, they find the banks, which means they find the stockholders, who had no role in this. Stockholders are completely innocent. But the bankers kept their bonuses, went off to other jobs, retired, and the stockholders lost that in my view is a tra- travesty of justice.
0: Do you, do you think there was a room in which some powerful people said, yeah, let's not have any prosecutions. How, how do you think we arrived at that particular system of justice after
1: the crisis? Well, if you look at the, who ran this, uh, it was basically investment banking guys around the treasury, uh, Hank Paulson, for example, from Goldman Sachs. Bob Rubin. People who got together were the people who created the bubble, and they managed to refloat the bubble. That's what everyone wanted them to do. Nobody wanted to have a real reckoning where you marked everything to what it could be sold at and liquidated things. That would have been very disruptive. So I think, yes, in a sense, the people who arranged the crisis did make a decision that they would not engaged in criminal prosecutions, because what they want to do is calm nerves, restore confidence, refloat the bubble, and make the problem go away as fast as possible. There's a rationale for it, but I don't think there's a good one. I don't think it was an adequate rationale. So
0: turning back to Asia, you, you had a front seat to witness the rise of the Chinese economy. And I guess it's been said that post 2008, the Chinese felt very confident because the you know the, the the financiers that they had admired so much in the west had had blown things up and actually that i guess the chinese helped bail out the western economies maybe you can tell us just uh, obviously it's difficult to summarize an entire decade of experience but tell us a little bit about uh what you learned from that experience
1: well the first first thing that reorient group asked me to do before they hired me was to produce a study of the chinese economy and I noticed two things immediately. One is that there was then a massive effort to build up human and physical capital in the high-tech space. Um, We didn't yet have the full dimensions of this 5G plus artificial intelligence combine, which is doing so much to transform economic life under the rubric of the fourth industrial revolution, but you could see the outlines already. Chinese universities that had been burnt to the waterline during the Cultural Revolution were now reviving, and there was a generation getting tertiary education at a high level on a scale that no one in the world had ever done before. The second thing was the Belt and Road Initiative. In 2008, (coughs) if I recall correctly, exports to the United States amounted to about 9% of China's GDP. That's 2007. And exports overall were more than a third of China's GDP. By last year, exports to the U.S. were around 2% of China's GDP, and exports total were about 17% of GDP. So exports... As a portion of GDP, the export dependency of the Chinese economy dropped by half, and the export dependency to the U.S. dropped by three-quarters or more. That was an enormous shift. And the, the great Chinese idea in the early 2010s was to use China's experience in creating robust supply lines and employing very large numbers of semi-skilled workers in ways that raise their income substantially and export that model to the rest of it, to the rest of developing Asia and parts of the global South, otherwise parts of Africa and Latin America. I wrote a book about this in 2022 entitled, silly title, you will be assimilated. China's plan to sinoform the world. And what I mean by sinoforming is simply repeating to some extent the great urbanization and industrialization that China had undertaken so successfully under Deng Xiaoping and applying it to many other countries and integrating them into a sinocentric economic sphere. It's not exactly Japan's you know, greater co-prosperity sphere. It's an invidious comparison because it's quite different. But China is now busily transforming many of the economies of the global south and creating almost a parallel world system competing with the old Americanocentric centric economic zone. And you could see that beginning to happen in 2013. And after looking at the picture we had 10 years ago, I became convinced that this was the biggest transformational act that would happen in the world economy in my lifetime, and I wanted to find out more about it. So I joined Reorient and spent a lot of time learning about this. I got to know people at Huawei quite well. Huawei is, if, if there's a single iconic company of the fourth industrial revolution, a truly Huawei, just as, for example, Ford Motor might have been the iconic company of the second industrial revolution.
0: Yeah, I, I think, didn't we just see a, statistics where, a statistic where the Chinese exports to, I, I forgot whether it was to BRICS countries or to BRI countries, now exceeds China exports to EU, Japan, and the United States.
1: Yes, so, uh, yeah. well, China, in March of this year, for the first time, China's exports to the Global South as a whole, that includes Russia, Saudi Arabia, it's a broad definition, Central Asia, everybody but the developed markets. China's exports to the Global South exceed their combined exports to the United States, Europe, and Japan to the developed markets. And exports to the Global South are roughly four times China's exports to the United States. That's been an incredibly fast ramp up that's a doubling in just three years. And it reflects not just lots of people buying Chinese toasters or motor scooters. A great deal of that is led by infrastructure, both physical and digital. China is wiring up the Global South for broadband. And that has knock-on effects because it allows people to do things they couldn't do before. And makes possible important increases in productivity. That, by the way, is now the conventional wisdom. The International Monetary Fund of the World Bank have written a great deal about the central role of digital technology in raising productivity in uh, global South countries. I think everyone would agree that this is an, a, this is a critical feature of, of economic development. What is Really stunning is how fast this is now occurring. You can see it in the numbers, and you can see it in a very granular basis, looking what's happening country by country. I covered for Asia Times the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona in February, which was a real eye-opener. Huawei had nearly half the floor space. It was clearly the star of the show. This is after several years in which the United States did its best to shut Huawei down, it only succeeded in effectively shutting down its handset division, but didn't do very much in terms of its infrastructure, 5G to business, and, and other divisions. There was a large area in the Huawei pavilion occupied by partner companies, mainly telecom companies from countries ranging from Thailand to Turkey to Ghana, Brazil, discussing what they were doing with 5G and artificial intelligence. And it's really quite remarkable. This applies to government administration, healthcare, manufacturing, quality control. And Huawei has been very inventive in terms of finding ways to make 5G fit into the existing needs of relatively poor uh, economies. will give you an example. There's a company in Bangladesh, which is the main food processing entity for chili peppers. They basically take chili peppers, dry them, and put them into bags and sell them. Doesn't seem to be very sophisticated, but they've got a significant spoilage problem because if you put one rotten pepper into a bag, it'll spoil the entire bag and your spoilers might be 15%, which is substantial. So they installed high-speed cameras on the conveyor belt and used an artificial intelligence algorithm to examine the images and identify a rotten pepper. AI is very good at things like quality control. You can train an AI system to look at images and distinguish a healthy pepper from a rotten pepper. So they were able to reduce their spoilage to near nearly zero. This is an application of fairly sophisticated technology, high-speed camera, cloud computing, 5G communications, and artificial intelligence to do something very simple like food processing. But in a country like Bangladesh, where the food processing industry is one of these steps up the ladder towards uh, industrialization, it's extremely important.
0: Yeah, that's a good example. And, you know, I think one of the things that Westerners fail to appreciate is that not only is the AI capability of a company like Huawei really first rate, it's as good or better than, you know, any Western company, the the costs are extremely low. Like, I I think Westerners just can't uh, believe how how cheaply... Huawei can roll out things like 5G access and even access to these uh, more advanced AI applications. Huawei
1: has a huge advantage over Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung, and other competitors. Uh, It's the lead player in a market of 1.4 billion people. So it has vast economies of scale and a huge number of examples to work on. So they can very quickly work go go up the learning curve and figure out how to do things. And once they get get it down right, they can then produce the they can then reproduce that result very cheaply. Not just wally. I mean one of the most stunning things I think that's happened in the world economy recently is Chinese auto companies producing ten thousand dollar electric vehicles. BYD just introduced one for eleven thousand dollars, the Seagull, which can go from, you know, zero to 50 miles an hour in five five seconds. That is like a 250 kilometer radius and it costs $11,000. Wu Ling in a partnership with GM is gonna produce a somewhat smaller car for $9,000. This is like the Henry Ford Model T of the 21st century. Henry Ford had a really simple idea, produce a quality car and a price equal to roughly per capita GDP, price of a new car. In 1908, if a new Model T was roughly the per capita US GDP, which meant that a very large number of working people could afford it. The Ch- Chinese GDP is about $12,500 per capita, so the seagull is within that range. How do they do that? Well, you have an enormous amount of robotics, artificial intelligence applications, and other forms of automation on very large scale, which reduce your unit cost. It's the Ford Model T principle in the age of AI. So uh, Huawei has done some remarkable things, and many Chinese manufacturers do remarkable things too. And I see these examples popping up faster and faster. And I look at American industry in alarm I've only been able to count three or four private 5G-slash-AI networks in American manufacturing. Now, GM is using it, John Deere is installing a system, but there's very little else except at experimental facilities. So China's edge in manufacturing, which started at the low end of the scale and then moved up to the middle of the scale, may very well make China the dominant player in the world's largest Manufacturing industry, which was automotive, with a $3 trillion annual sales. And that would make China's manufacturing really insuperable. We wouldn't be able to compete with them. And I think that would be very damaging, very bad for the United States. And I've devoted a lot of effort to try to convince uh, politicians and bureaucracies and whoever who've got some influence over this to do something about it. Because the last thing I would like to see is the United States left behind by China. You know, the the story
0: of the last five to seven years, which, which you you mentioned there, is that Huawei and also ZTE pretty much took over 5G telecoms worldwide. Anywhere that where the US government is not able to force the locals not to do business with Huawei, they are buying the equipment, which is cheaper and better. From Chinese suppliers. And now overnight, you have people realizing that the Chinese EV industry is fully competitive with Tesla and actually surpassed other Western EV makers. I think this shock was in particular very discontinuous because of the pandemic. People sort of lost track
1: you know, of what they were doing in you China. You also forget that to a great extent, Tesla is a Chinese company. absolutely yeah Uh, the gigafactories in shanghai yes the teslas china is now the world's largest exporter of automobiles It surpassed japan i believe in in march or april i forget which month and there were the two single largest contributors to that margin of growth were the fact that china took over the russian market because the europeans abandoned it because of the war but most of all tesla which is one of the biggest i think the biggest exporter of cars from China.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think they, the recent, at the recent Shanghai auto show, people were shocked. So, th- so that was post-pandemic. It was open to the world. I think VW flew, I think, all its directors to the, to the show so they could see what was happening. And I think the Western automakers were really shocked at the price and quality of the
1: Chinese EVs. Well, the, the most productive plant BW has is not in Germany, but in China. That's actually been true for several years. And the Chinese will give BW as well as Tesla a run for their money. From the standpoint of the, the Germans, they really have no choice for several reasons, but to become all the more integrated into the Chinese economy. That's due, for, that's due to several factors. One is, of course, the fact that China dominates the battery market. The second is that the Chinese internal market is critical to them, and also because they simply cannot get enough skilled labor at home, perpetual labor footage, to compete on a grand scale. So the Germans have absolutely no intention of decoupling from China or de-risking. They're coupling all the more. So can you
0: make a prediction for how successful the United States will be in trying to get European countries like Germany to decouple from China?
1: It depends on the industry. I think in terms of their core industries like auto, they will be not successful at all because it would be a matter, it would be economic suicide for them to do anything else. And some people will commit suicide for the United States, but very few of them speak German, of French. (laughs)
0: Well, well, they may, have, they may have just committed suicide vis-a-vis energy costs, right, under the direction of the United States.
1: All the more reason for them to move capacity to China, because if higher energy costs begin to price some of their plants in Germany out of the market, that motivates them even more strongly to expand capacity in China. So
0: you don't, you don't think the U.S. will succeed in getting Germany to...
1: Decouple. No, <laughs> a, 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 absolutely not. Um, if you look at German politics in detail, which uh, we do at Age of Times, there is a, if you will, a sinophilic surge of opinion, particularly coming from the SPD, from the old sort of working class wing of the SPD. A paper came out from an entity called the Zeheimer the Zeheimer Circle. Which is considered sort of SPD left, calling for a quote multi-dimensional policy towards China, which means we don't follow the U.S. view. The very anti-Chinese view in Germany is associated with the Green Party, which is the yuppie, hip, with it, you know, very pro-American party. But they've gotten absolutely crushed in the polls recently. I don't think they're going to be calling the shots. So, no, on the contrary, I see a Strongly, uh, a more pro-Chinese direction coming out of German politics recently than the opposite. And then, you, of course, you have countries like Hungary. If I remember correctly, Huawei's supply chain management is based in Budapest, and they've got a number of exemplary projects in Budapest. It's sort of interesting, because Orban is the hero of American, many American conservatives. I won't go into whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. I met the man once and think he's extremely talented and clever as a leader, but he's been very close to the Chinese. So I don't think that you'll see strong cooperation in general. However, ASML will probably go along with some of the restrictions on lithography machines that the United States has demanded. It's not quite clear where they're going to draw the limit, but the United States probably has enough influence with the Dutch government to make that happen, and the Dutch have enough markets outside of China. So it'll be a mixed picture, but in general, no, the United States will not succeed in isolating China. From Europe, Japan's a different story. The Japanese seem quite eager to join the United States in suppressing China, Maybe understandable given historical enmity between those countries. Japan, I, I have to say, I have very little insight into Japanese thinking. I'm simply watching it from the outside.
0: Yeah, it's a similar situation. I in 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 slightly less leading edge semiconductor manufacturing. A lot of the tools are Japanese. So for deep ultraviolet, but not extreme ultraviolet, a lot of the tools come from Japan. And it's, it's, uh, that's something to keep an eye on to what extent the Japanese are going to stop selling.
1: Yeah. The, the Japanese and the Germans have a very different relationship to China. Japanese cars were never particularly popular in China. They never had big market share. Now, a lot of that is due to, you know, historical poor relations between the two countries because of the, you know, the horrible events of the second world war. So unlike the Germans who really bet the farm on the Chinese market early on, particularly Volkswagen more than anyone else, the Japanese automakers never really had that kind of commitment to the Chinese market. So it's not quite the same thing for them. The Japanese also certainly have to be worried about the Chinese uh, auto industry. Japanese took market share away from American automakers more than a generation by making inexpensive and reliable smaller cars, which knocked American competitors out of the market, then the Koreans to some extent did that to the Japanese, and the Chinese are now doing it to the Koreans. So Toyota has to be worried about that. One of the mysteries to me is why Toyota Honda and Honda stock have done so well in the last few months because they very much they're very much behind on electric vehicles. And an electric vehicle costs less than half as much to run as a gasoline vehicle. That's gotta hurt them, particularly in markets where they hope to have growth.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't understand the Toyota Honda stock prices, given that they're quite exposed to the China market and to the to the future of EVs. So I, I mean some analysts I've seen are speculating that Toyota and Honda are really in trouble in the coming decade.
1: Yes, uh, I'm not an automotive uh, automotive analyst, but I've heard I've seen that argument, and you know, certainly the Chinese have done some stunning things in the last year, which ought to make the Japanese automakers very worried.
0: Yeah, I think the Honda, the Toyota chairman or CEO made some public comments to that effect, actually, or maybe it was the Honda CEO after the Shanghai Auto Show.
1: Yeah, so it's something something to keep your eye on. Okay, uh, so. The, the, the picture that I saw, going back to your question, Steve, in 2013 is coming together faster than I anticipated and in a way which should really provoke reflection and worry on the part of uh, the United States. We've been running a chronic trade deficit, at manufacturers uh, for more than 30 years. We've accumulated nearly $20 trillion of debt in effect. We've sold a quote nearly $20 trillion of assets to foreigners over that time to finance this enormous manufacturer's deficit. We have let our manufacturing deteriorate to the point that when the Ukrainians started running short on 105, 155 millimeter artillery shells, which is not a high-tech item, that's a commodity item, we were unable to find the capacity to produce them. And I understand that we're not going to be able to ramp up production until 2027. It appears that the black powder that's required for the primer on the shells was produced by a single factory in Louisiana, which blew up in an accident. So we've got a chronic shortage of primer powder. The degree to which American manufacturing capacity has atrophied in the past generation is certainly a pressing national security issue, and in the long term, maybe not so long term, it's an impossible situation because you can't keep selling your assets forever. Now, we have the great luck that the world believed in the American tech story and put enormous valuations in American tech assets that so people bought tech stocks but if those valuations start to fade or we simply cannot produce the asset valuations we have in the past at some point that's there's got to be a, an adjustment that could be a very sharp decline in the value of the dollar for example which means americans are poor and at the same time because we diverted so much talent into first the finance industry in the 2000s and the tech industry in the 2010s, uh, we lack the skills to ramp up manufacturing quickly. Only five percent of American undergrads major in engineering now—five or six percent. The only country comparable to that is England, which has long since been deindustrialized. In China, it's 33%. In Russia, it's 33%. Russia produces more engineers in absolute numbers than in the United States with less than half the population.
0: I think the number for China is somewhere between six and 10 times the U.S. engineering production per year. Engineer
1: production. There are something like six times. And from everything I can tell, uh, the Chinese universities have really come up to world standard. You now, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, you could look at somebody with a degree from a mediocre chinese university as a diploma reject but that's not true anymore the chinese i know uh, i know well i should say i know chinese tech companies that won't hire a chinese citizen who's just gotten a b.a from an american university because they assume that if he or she went to an american university it's because there was a lousy grade in the Galco. They couldn't get a decent spot at a Chinese university, and their rich parents sent them to the U.S. instead. Yeah, there
0: is a little bit of adverse selection. So when a kid come, when a Chinese kid comes to the U.S. for colleges, there are some questions as to why that kid came.
1: Yeah, so kid rich parents. Yeah, it could be. It not always, but it could. No, that I, 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 I don't mean that. Look, I, I'm, I'm currently living in Great Neck, just outside manhattan where no, i'm a long-standing manhattan I, but I grew up in great neck Great neck's now 40 percent chinese a lot of chinese nationals who live here their kids go to school at the high school here and one of the high schools the mainly chinese house was the highest test scores in the state so they're certainly not dumb. a lot of people sure uh, a lot of chinese happen to want to live in the united states god bless them the more the better Nothing wrong with the United States that 20 million Chinese immigrants wouldn't fix real fast.
0: The other day I was talking to uh, a very senior executive uh, in tech in China who had had held also senior roles in the United States before going back. And he told me his interpretation was that the Third World War has actually already started, but it's being conducted purely by financial and economic means for the moment. Well, do you...
1: I, I yes, uh, I think China. The the mood in China is very much that the United States will do anything possible to prevent China from rising. I know of almost no one in China who is optimistic about the future of U.S.-Chinese relations, at least for the next couple of years. The United the fact that the United States is trying to stop China from developing, designing, and fabricating semiconductors. Uh, you know, uh, uh, gate widths of less than, say, I think, the threshold of 17 nanometers is really a remarkable thing. Uh, I don't think we've ever done anything like that. It's like the the British trying to prevent the United States from getting textile equipment in the early part of the 19th century. That will not work, just as it didn't work between the United States and the British back then. But I think there's a very grim mood in China, very much a fortress China approach. I think that explains a good deal of the economic policy of the Chinese government. Xi is running a more of a command economy approach to channeling resources to critical national industries in order to compensate for this. I very much hope we won't have a shooting war because if we do, it would be an absolute catastrophe. It might be the worst thing that ever happened to the human race. I wrote in Claremont Review of Books last year that the single most important task of our lifetime is to prevent war between the United States and China.
0: You know that you mentioned that in a way she is kind of moving them toward a kind of war footing, maybe an economic war footing, if not a, a military war footing. And, for example, pushing huge resources into building their own semiconductor supply chain. The other day, I was interacting on Twitter with a journalist named Virginia Postrel, who had written actually a very nice article about TSMC in Taiwan. That's and a very, very bright journalist. Yeah, and I mean, it was a good article, very good article, I recommend it. But one of the mistakes that was made, maybe not her fault, was that she said that the chips that the, the cutting edge, say three nanometer or five nanometer process chips made by TSMC, were going into weapon systems, which was totally wrong. They're going to iPhones. No, that's, like uh, that. that,
1: that, that's quite right. Uh, uh, you and I have discussed this. Uh, there is a RAND Corporation report published last year, which goes through in great detail what kind of chips are used for what weapon systems. And the last thing you want to do for a weapon system is use a three nanometer chip. It's very easy to disrupt because it's so delicate. You want to use older and much more robust chips that can be hardened. And there, there is an argument, and it comes from te- utopians like Eric Schmidt, who's not a technologist, he's a Silicon Valley mocker, that we need to dominate the super fast processing chips because the future of warfare is gonna be artificial intelligence. In other words, my computer is gonna set up drone swarms to play video games, with your computer, which is, I think, from a military standpoint, nonsense. So they're concerned that uh, China not get the most advanced chips for the most advanced processing because somehow they think the most advanced processors are going to win. For anything that might affect warfare at a 10-year horizon, all that stuff is nonsense. For guidance systems on missiles, sensors, uh, any of these things. 90 nanometers is about the smallest gate gate with you're going to find
0: right so the rationale which is given which uh, you know i forgive virginia for writing that because she was probably just told that by some pentagon flack that you know the chip war was all about chips that go into advanced weapons systems and she just wrote it but the fact that that's not true exposes that this really is an economic war right i mean they're whole they're trying to suppress Chinese technological progress in general, not just the, imp- the impact of it on military.
1: Yes, that, that, that's correct. Uh, I, I spoke not long ago with one of the founding fathers of the American ship industry, one of the people who done important breakthroughs going back to the seventies. His comment was that the United States government is run by idiots who have no idea how the industry works and it's not the speed of your chips which is decisive in the real world, it's the overall architecture of your system, the quality of your software. So although it's certainly true that lack of access to faster chips has been a pain in the neck for many applications, in terms of the things that really make a difference for economic life, there's nothing that China can't do with 14 nanometer and older chips. Yeah, that's correct. I, having though interacted with
0: a lot of strategists and think tankers at Brookings or RAND or, you know, even in the White House, I think very few of them really understand technology and they, they could, they could actually believe that these three nanometer process chips are finding their ways, finding their way into missiles and radar systems in military aircraft. I, I think they're just actually legitimately confused about some of these things. The
1: the de- in general, the degree of ignorance about the technological changes which are now happening in an incredibly fast base in China stuns me. I, I feel like I'm writing science fiction. I see people's eyes glaze over but I, I try to explain to them what's happening. And for example, just take Simplest in the world, loading and unloading a container ship. The port of Los Angeles is uh, the largest port in the United States, and it's number 300 close to the bottom on the World Bank's ranking of port productivity. Uh, The major Chinese ports are all in the top 10, and the Tianjin port, which Huawei chose as its showcase for 5G slash AI technology, has... Uh, reduce the amount of time for unloading a large container ship from eight hours to 45 minutes.
0: I, I think I've seen video of this zone in the Te- Tianjin
1: port where no humans are allowed because it's only robots. Sure. Well, it goes at an incredible pace. Uh, space, and you, you, you take a an autonomous crane, picks a container, up. authorship <coughs> reads its barcode or gets a signal from an embedded chip, puts it in an autonomous truck, which zips it to a warehouse where robots unload it. Yeah, so this, this is this is really amazing stuff. And they're fully automated factories where there's no one on the shop floor at all, just have a technician occasionally looks at this stuff. And AI does the quality control, AI does the preventative maintenance on your machines. And AI can, in fact, already uh, alter production processes. You can have robots talk to each other and come up with improvements in the production process, which is pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable. So the changes that are happening are spectacular. They're on the level of the previous industrial revolutions. They're not an exaggeration. This is not a drill, this is the real thing. And very little of it is happening in the United States, in the auto industry certainly, because The auto industry is completely global. General Motors sells more cars in China now than it does in the United States, and it produces more cars in China than the U.S. So it is uh, a Chinese auto company in that respect, doing joint ventures with uh, SAIC. So yes, there are some American companies which are involved, and as I mentioned, John Deere appears to be getting up to speed, but it's a tiny portion of American manufacturing. So you, earlier you mentioned
0: that there's a faction in the SPD in Germany that wants to take a more balanced direction in German relations with China. Can you see any hope for a political movement in the United States that actually moves in that direction? Well,
1: it's, you have a number of people in American politics who would have said publicly, we don't really care what China does. We care about what affects American working people. Let's do the best for them. And if you know, China does well, that doesn't hurt us. And you know, We don't particularly see why the United States should get into a nuclear war over Taiwan. Um, some of those people hang around with the Claremont Institute where I'm a fellow, or a fellow of the Washington branch. You have a number of conservative publications like Compact magazine, which is edited by my friends Sarah Bakmari and Matthew Schmitz, American conservatives. So there there certainly are people in the United States who are much more concerned about conditions of life for Americans than great power competition with China. I mean, I'm all for great power competition with China as long as it benefits us. But I don't think sandbagging China will do any good trying to stay ahead of them. That was a different story. So, yes, I, I, I think there is a minority in the United States which wants to back off from this full-tilt, you know, stop China approach. And, of course, you have the old you know, Wall Street and commercial interests who are deeply embedded in China, companies like Apple, of course, who do not want to get into a scrap of China because that's where their bread is buttered. Those guys have been kind of quiet lately because nobody wants to be accused of being soft on China in American politics. But yes, I could see that turning around at some point in the future, but truly not in the next couple of years and not in the presidential election season.
0: Would you say that of the major candidates, Trump is maybe the most likely to actually adopt a more reasonable position vis-a-vis China?
1: Now, this is very hard to say. Trump is a volatile character, but his record is that he wants to gain an advantage and cut a deal he does not want to destroy. So when ZTE was caught red-handed, violating the Iran sanctions, Trump worked out a fine as opposed to an absolute ban on American chips going to ZTE smartphones, which kept ZTE in business. In fact, Trump had vetoed a milder version of the bans on chip technology going to China, which had been proposed in late 2018, late 2019. And in fact, he gave a speech saying America's open for business, we're not in business of bans. What changed that was COVID-19. Trump personally blamed the Chinese for The COVID-19 outbreak, whether he was justified or not is a much longer discussion, but because of COVID-19, he switched position. So Trump certainly is capable of being being a dealer as opposed to a destroyer. Uh, On the other hand, you know, we haven't heard from Governor DeSantis on this, old DeSantis has talked about his limiting Chinese asset acquisition in Florida. So uh, I don't think we should speak for DeSantis. We'll have to say what he asks, how, how he views this issue. On the Democratic side, I think we know what Biden is doing. So consider that a given. The one good thing we can say, or from my standpoint, a good thing is that given how poorly the Biden administration has done in many areas. The polls suggest the next administration is more likely to be Republican than not. So a change of administration certainly brings with it the opportunity for, I hate to use the word, a reset in China's American elections.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because certainly, though, among the Republicans are some of the most hawkish anti-China uh, politicians. So it, it's a little bit unpredictable, I think, what you'll actually get in an New Republican administration.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I consider myself a hawk of the old Reagan variety. I'd like to be spending money on missile defense, protecting the American homeland, even a great deal of money. But by the same token, I see no reason why sticking to the one China policy shouldn't prevent a war. Yes. Do you have any Do you have
0: any predictions on uh, what will happen in in vis-a-vis Taiwan?
1: Well, the one thing we know for certain about Taiwan is that its demographics are next to Korea, the worst of any industrialized country in the world, uh, and that its uh, adult workforce over the next 50 years is gonna fall from nine or 10 million to three or four million. Uh, At that point, it'll cease to be an important factor. My guess is that Taiwan is gonna be very cautious about provoking a scrap of China, which would entail upon any significant move towards independence. I mean, you know, we've discussed this in the past, and I've I've written this many times, but I think Americans fail to understand that for China, for any Chinese government, the territorial integrity of China is an existential question. It's a raison d'etat. China is not a country, China is an empire, where which which still has you know, six major language groups and 200 dialects. It's centralized by a common infrastructure, common bureaucracy, common tax authority and army, and a common written language, but most Chinese speak dialect at home. Most can understand Mandarin, but it's still a multilingual country. So, If one province secedes, other provinces can succeed and uh, secede. And China's tragic history has almost always entailed an alliance between invaders and renegade provinces trying to split. So the sensitivity of any Chinese government of this issue is extreme. And that's why I think China will go to war rather than allow Taiwanese secession. However, maintaining the status quo should not be particularly difficult. I think Beijing is very happy to maintain the status quo. And if the United States makes clear that the status quo is what will be there indefinitely, there's no reason to fight.
0: Yeah, I I think it's pretty clear that both sides of the Strait want the status quo to continue. And I think the real actor that could cause a war is is the United States changing its position?
1: Well, you certainly have an independence movement in Taiwan. You have some people who are deeply committed to that, but they're certainly a minority. And if the United States were to throw its weight behind that minority and promote independence, then we uh, very well could have a disaster. One reads all these articles about China's ready to invade Taiwan and admitted they'll be ready by 2027 or some other arbitrary date. Uh, this is has no basis, in fact, of any kind. It simply attributes to the Chinese Communist Party a malicious intent to conquer everyone in the region just because they're bad guys. No Chinese government has ever fought for something that it could get without fighting. It, it 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 really makes no sense at all. It's inflammatory and it's wrong. Yeah, I agree with you.
0: I I would say even the pro independence greens in Taiwan are very careful about what they say about independence, and especially doubly so after seeing the example of what's happened in Ukraine. So this these elections, upcoming elections in Taiwan, where the KMT seems to have had a little bit of a resurgence, will be
1: very interesting. Yeah, Lindsey Graham notoriously said about the ukraine war this is great they'll they'll fight to the last ukrainian <laughs> uh, and if the ukrainians want to be that kind of american ally of which uh, henry kissinger said that it's dangerous to be america's enemy but fatal to be our ally if that's what they want well no then we know what's going to happen to ukraine there won't be much left of it with well, a dust settled, however mass suicide has never been a phenomenon in Chinese history, to my knowledge.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think the Taiwanese want to fight to the last person and nor do they want Taiwanese industry to be wrecked the way that the Ukrainian economy has been wrecked.
1: Yeah. So it, it is not really in principle difficult to avoid a war. It just requires really profound stupidity to get into it. And this isn't 1914 where. Germany occupied Alsace and France wanted it back, and it's not 1939 where Hitler wanted to get all the ethnic Germans back into the Reich, and you know, Poland had closed the Danzig corridor or something like that. You don't have a casus belly of the same kind because the Chinese on both sides of the strait can work out a modus vivendi, which is perfectly acceptable. So. The idea that, you know, we have the same conditions as World War I or the same conditions of the Peloponnesian War, as Graham Allison indicated, I think are exaggerated. Allison's book, so-called Thucydides Trap, Destined for War, is a very useful and important book. I reviewed it favorably and Claron reviewed books, but I simply don't see the underlying necessity of war as we have in some of the great tragedies of the past.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I I mean, the dynamic of a rising number two and a number one, maybe that wants to force the war before number two becomes too powerful to contain. That dynamic is certainly present here. The thing I would worry most about is a very hawkish group in the US government that believes in that, that they have to basically force a war between the United States and China before
1: it's too late. And they use Taiwan as the trigger. Well, yes, and- uh, it, that That is a worry. It's I believe that worry is mitigated by the fact that everyone in the professional military thinks it's too late to successfully fight such a war, at least anywhere near China's borders. Uh, that's certainly the view at the Pentagon. If you read closely the November 29, 2022 assessment of the Chinese military published by the Department of Defense, uh, they're well aware that... Uh, China has a massive advantage, uh, home court advantage, uh, with a very large number of highly accurate satellite-guided ballistic missiles, a point that you specialized in. They're not idiots. They know that very well. For a long time, the Navy and other people who want more surface ships tried to dismiss that. But the consensus Pentagon view is this is a really serious problem. So I don't think the professional military, at any level, is advising any part of the government that the United States is likely to win a military game with China. Yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, I I, I would worry about
0: uh, some careerist military officers who paint a rosier picture of our prospects no. in such no. a country.
1: Comp- sure, the the Navy or bunch, you know, the no. Navy is playing a really rotten role in this for a simple reason: every captain who wants to be an admiral? wants to skipper an aircraft carrier. So to skipper an aircraft carrier, you have to pretend that aircraft carriers aren't sitting ducks for missiles, which of course they are. So a great deal of careerist obfuscation goes into estimates. When my old friend Eldridge Colby writes about, you know, just stocking up on 150 millimeter howitzer shells in Taiwan, You know bridge is looking for a big job at the pentagon he won't get it without support from the navy so he doesn't want to say what the navy is saying is insane a lot of uh, ass covering and careerism goes into this but i think the consensus down the professional military is that this one will miss i'm glad to hear that I, i think you actually did some work for the
0: office of net assessment do you do you think there are still very competent professionals in the Pentagon who are, uh, listened to by the
1: political leadership. Our, uh, the office of net assessment really centered on the personality of the late and great Andy Marshall, whom I had the enormous privilege to work for sporadically. So I had a sporadic privilege to work for him. Andy was a great man. He was put in there by Kissinger. He was one of the movers and shakers in the Reagan administration, military buildup and the strategic defense initiative and he was respected by everybody when andy retired and shortly afterwards died he was 96 years old ona became a much less prominent entity so no i think that the the pentagon is is not as well as vides as it used to be however the evidence is so obvious in terms of chinese missiles electronic warfare, and other capability, that you simply can't suppress it. And the evidence for that is that last November, the Pentagon produced what I thought was a reasonably competent assessment. And reading that, nobody would want to start a war with China. That's reassuring. Well, I hope I'm right. I mean, there are always nut bowls out there. The consensus view of the Pentagon, I think is reasonably sensible. Great. Well. We're coming up on an hour and a half
0: and I don't want to take up too much of your time but I've really enjoyed our conversation so far. See, Are President there any last Harley. Oh, thank you. Are there any last remarks you want to make to my audience? Any predictions or insights you want to share?
1: I think China needs a strong United States. Chinese government's governance is highly problematic. The kind of imperial system which worked well when the principal task of China was to build large riparian works to control floods and irrigate crops, is much less conducive to a technology, a technologically advanced and innovative kind of framework. China needs more democracy, needs more freedom of expression. It needs the United States as an example of that kind of political system. I'm not proposing that China throw out its uh, thousands of years of political traditions and instantane instantly you know adopt the principles of James Madison. That's not going to happen. But I think it would be good for China for the United States to be strong and very bad for the world to have any unipolar power arrangement, whether it's American or Chinese. Great.
0: My guest today has been David Goldman. David, thank you very much.
1: Steve, great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for the invitation.